Y'all may be seated. So yeah, blessing to be here today, blessing to see all of you here, and I think we have a few more brave souls than we had last year, if my memory serves. Yom Kippur is always a kind of a hard day for some people. We're going to like to welcome everybody to Yom Kippur. This is known as the Day of Atonement. You know, the Jews consider this day the holiest day of the year, and I tend to agree with this assessment. What is the uh, meaning and significance of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement? What does it mean? Why are we here? As we'll see in this message, it was a day when Israel's sins were removed from the camp. They were made atoned for and removed from the camp. This day offered a cleansing for the people of Israel, and also a reconciliation between them and Almighty Yahweh. And I say reconciliation because we know that sin creates a barrier between us and our Father in Heaven. That is a pattern we find all throughout Scripture, that sin puts a barrier between us and the one we worship. So Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is all about making things right between us and our Father in Heaven. And I believe it has a very important, significant role in Israel's future relationship. I want to begin, though, with Leviticus 23. Go back to the beginning, Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 26. And here we find the command of, uh, for the Day of Atonement for Yom Kippur. So it says, Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Also, on the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation, and those who follow me on Facebook, you'll see I put out there, what is a holy convocation? We'll talk about that, but it's a sacred meeting. It's a time that we're to come together as believers. It's a moment when we're to assemble, when we're commanded to assemble. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. It says, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh, and you shall do no work in that same day. For it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before Yahweh Elohim. For whatsoever soul or person it be that shall not be afflicted, shall not be afflicted in that same day, so the day of atonement, it says, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, that same soul will I destroy from among his people. This is one reason why the Jews consider this the holiest or most strict day of the year. That warning of those who would do any work would be destroyed. It says, you shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even, at the end of the ninth day, in other words, from even unto even, shall you celebrate your Sabbath. So we find a few things here. Number one, we find that Yom Kippur is when? Yom Kippur is on the tenth day of the seventh month. It's one of the four feasts we find within this sacred season. Now the word atonement is from the Hebrew Kippur. It's Yom Kippur, Yom meaning day. Kippur is atonement, so Yom Kippur is where we get the Hebrew term. Means expiation. Expiation means to make amends or to cover sin. So this day is all about making amends. This day is all about covering sin. This day is all about reconciling with our Father in heaven. On this day in the Old Testament, Israel's sins were taken away from the camp or outside the camp with what was called the Azazel or the scapegoat. So the scapegoat would take the sins of the people. The scapegoat would then be let out, and the sins would be removed. Now, we also see here that this day is called a holy convocation. Sometimes attendance can be a bit low on this day, as it is a little bit today. But we understand people get sick. People have a hard time with this. But Scripture does call this a holy convocation. This phrase comes from the Hebrew Kodesh Mikra simply means a sacred gathering or assembly. So we're commanded on this day to come together, to come out, to assemble, to congregate, and to worship Almighty Yahweh. Now, we also see a command here that we're to afflict our souls on this day. Now, I want to come back to this, but the word afflict means to fast. means to fast. We'll see examples of this, but it means to fast. And what is a fast? Or a fast is going without food and drink both. 
Some people, they'll consider a fast as maybe just a food. No, a fast is going without food and drink. And we'll, again, we'll see some examples of that as we go through this message. Verse 32, we find here that Yom Kippur is a Sabbath of rest. Now, there's something very intriguing about this word Sabbath. I want to share that with you. The word Sabbath here is not really found with any other, other feast days. There may be one exception. I have to go and find it. But the uh, word here, Shabbat or Shabbat, which is also the word used for the weekly Sabbath. Now, why is that different? Why is that intriguing? Or what makes that intriguing is that the word Sabbath in reference to the other feast days is Shabbathon. It's a different word. But here in reference to the Day of Atonement, Yahweh uses the word Shabbat. Now, what do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose Yahweh uses Shabbat here, not Shabbathon? I believe the reason is, is Shabbat carries a stricter policy behind it. It's a stricter day of worship. Again, anybody who does any work on this day, Yahweh says he's going to be, he's he's going to destroy that person. We know that on the feast days, that certain work is permitted. Unleavened bread permits uh, preparing a meal from all indication. They uh, built booths on the first day of of tabernacle. So, So there's a level of work, but not for atonement. Atonement is called a Shabbat. So that's the reason we believe, at least I believe here, that this is a stricter feast day, and this is why the Jews believe that this is the holiest, holiest day of the year. Now, I mentioned the word afflict means to fast, means to fast. How do we know that? How do we know that the word afflict here means to fast? Number one, we know in part from the Hebrew. Number two, we know from the examples in Scripture, especially when a, when a specific example we'll see in the New Testament. Now, the word afflict is from the Hebrew anah, anah, A-N-A-H, anah. Strong's defines anahs of looking down or browbeating. Vines defines anahs to afflict, to oppress, or to humble. So there's really nothing within the word itself conveying to fast besides the context, but it does convey this thought of humbling or afflicting or oppressing, considering that we've been fasting now since yesterday evening, I would assume that some of us feel a bit in awe, that some of us feel a bit afflicted, some of us may feel a bit oppressed, some of us may feel even a bit humbled because of the appetite, or maybe our throats are dry, or Yahweh intended it to be this way. Yahweh wanted us to humble ourselves. He wanted us to feel oppressed. He wanted us to to feel afflicted. This is a major component of this day. For those who forgo fasting, as some do, not many, but some, they miss this connection. Along with, obviously, Yahweh saying those who do not do this, that they're cut off. Now, beyond this, there's also evidence within Scripture. So we're going to see a few examples first one here is from Psalms 35, 13. It says, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. The word humbled here is from the Hebrew anah, anah. Now, we see a connection between anah and what? We see a connection here between anah and fasting. It says they humbled the anah through fasting. So we see how they humbled themselves here, and it was, again, through fasting. Now, we see another example of fasting, and this is really just more of an example of fasting, but it shows what a fast is. Jonah 3, 5 through 7, it says there, The people of Nineveh believed Elohim and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was, again, a sign of mourning, a sign of humility. So in connection with Fasting, which was also a sign of humility, a sign of repentance, we find here that the people were sackcloth. From the greatest of them, even to the least of them, there were no, there was no one exempt in this case. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Which again, ashes was a sign of, uh, a sign of remorse, a sign of, of um, repentance even. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the degree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man 
nor beast, herd, nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. So we find the meaning of the word fast here. Before we talk more about this, I want to talk a little bit about this story. As we remember, Jonah was commissioned by Yahweh to go to this horrible place called Nineveh. And he was to preach against Nineveh and, and um, preach against their sin. And, and, and uh, as we see here, where they repented. Now, to give you some background, why did Jonah feel this way? You know, some people say, why? The Assyrian Empire was one of the most ruthless and barbaric empires in the history of mankind. And the things they would do was just barbaric. It was insane. They, had, they were cruel. They were cruel people, and they were an enemy to Israel. And, of course, Jonah knew this. So Jonah was not a fan. Jonah was hoping that he would go to Nineveh, that he would preach to Nineveh, that they would disregard the message as everybody was assuming they would, and that Yahweh would smite them from the face of this earth. And, of course, we know that is not what happened. We find here that when Jonah came, when Jonah delivered his message from Yahweh, then the king took the message, repented, wore sackcloth, sat in ashes, and then he commanded everybody within his empire to fast, Every with, everyone within the city to fast. So what did this fast include? Was it only food? No. We see here that the fast was both food and water. And not only the people, but we find here that the, even the animals, the livestock within the city, the flocks within the city also fasted to show the seriousness and the gravity of their repentance. They wanted to show Yahweh that they were truly repentant for what they had done, which again was a remarkable, remarkable event. If you would understand the Assyrian people and the Assyrian empire and and how ruthless and, again, barbaric and depraved these people were, and then to find that they actually responded to Jonah's message and repented, it's just really unthinkable. But that's the story of Jonah. And we see here, though, within the story that, again, to show this repentance, to show this humility, they did so through fasting. And it says here that they they neither eat food nor drink water. So a fast is to abstain from both food and drink. Now, there's nothing wrong on other days, if we want to humble ourselves, to go with maybe without food. But a true fast, a biblical fast, is to go without food and water, as we find here. See another example of fasting in Luke. Luke 5.33 says, And they said unto him, Why do your disciples, why did the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees? But... Thine eat and drink. In this passage, Yahshua was being asked why his disciples did not fast, and yet we know that John's disciples would fast. We know that the Pharisees would fast. I believe that if I get this right, I get it wrong every so often. I think it was Monday and Thursdays, but it's twice a week. The Pharisees and they would fast. Most Pharisees, anyway, and and um, and again, the uh, disciples of John would. Do the same. Now, the reason the disciples were not fasting is Yahshua was still with them. Yahshua was still with them. All indication is they may have fasted after Yahshua had departed or died, but Yahshua was still with them, so they would not mourn or fast for that reason. That was Yahshua's response. But notice here, notice here how Yahshua defines fasting. What were they doing? The disciples were eating and they were drinking. So we find here by example that a fast again is what? A fast is when we abstain from both food and drink. A fast is not only when we abstain from just food, it's also when we abstain from both food and drink. So a biblical fast is when we abstain from food and drink, as we saw with Nineveh and as we see here through Yahshua's example. Now I think one of the best examples, I believe it's the best example, to show that the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur as the day of fasting is what we find in Acts 27.9. In my mind, there is no doubt, even though some may disagree, that Yom Kippur is a day of fasting. So here's what it says, Acts 27, verse 9. It says, Now when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them. By the way, 
When is hurricane season? It's about right now, through October, I believe it is. Well, that's about feast time, where they have their issues, too, with weather around this time, historically and even now. So we see here that the fast was already gone. It was already passed, and um, the, the, the uh, sailing was dangerous. Now, the word fast here, what does this mean? What's the meaning of the word fast? Well, it comes from the Greek word nestia, and it refers to a lack of food and drink as well, or voluntary and religious. Specifically, says the Day of Atonement. So this is from Strong's. So it says here, Nestia, fast, refers specifically to the Day of Atonement. And that's from Strong's, Nestia. So we see here that, again, this is referring to Paul's journeys. We find here that it occurred, it was after the fast, and the fast is a reference according to the strong, according to Strong's, again, Estia, and it refers to um, the Day of Atonement. It says this from the NIV, it says, um, Much time had been lost and sailing had already been da- become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So the NIV understands this. The NIV renders the fast as a Day of Atonement because of Nestia and what that means within the Greek. The New Century Version reads, We... I think I had this on the slide. We had lost much time, and it was now dangerous to sell because it was already after the day of cleansing. Cleansing. That's Yom Kippur. That's the day of atonement, the day of cleansing. So again, we find through the Greek in the New Testament that the day of atonement was connected with what? We find that the day of atonement was connected with a day of fasting, a day of fasting. This is crucial, especially for those who would deny. And there are some out there that say that we don't have to fast on this day. We can just afflict our souls any which way we desire. No, Scripture shows that we afflict our souls through fasting. And this day in the New Testament is called the fast. Nestia refers again to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So there's no doubt that this day is a day of fasting. We find ample evidence to validate what this day is. So again, when we read in the Old Testament that we're to afflict ourselves, we understand that this is through fasting. And again, if we understand the word of Nah, which is afflict, which goes back to being oppressed and afflicted, we are certainly oppressed when we fast. As we read in Leviticus 23, the person who refuses to afflict themselves are, are removed, are removed, destroyed, spiritually speaking, I believe. But it's not something we want to be part of. As believers, fasting is not something that we should view as optional. We are required to fast and to humble ourselves before Almighty Yahweh on this very special, special day of his year. I want to transition now and talk about how this day was observed in the Old Testament. There's something unique about this day. I wish more days were like this, but there's something very unique about Yom Kippur. Let me tell you what it is. So we have an entire chapter dedicated to Yom Kippur, giving us every nuance of information of how this day was observed in the Old Testament. It's really incredible when we realize that there's really nothing like this. Maybe for Passover, maybe, I guess, for Passover. But there's nothing else that gives a detailed description of the other feast days as we find with this one. So Leviticus 16 is where we find this. Leviticus 16, read verses 1 through 4, says, And Yahweh spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. And of course, we know what happened there. They offered a strange fire before Yahweh. Yahweh wiped them off and uh, smote them with fire, consumed them with fire. Of course, that's maybe another sermon, but that's a lesson in doing it Yahweh's way and not our way. When they offered before Yahweh and died, and Yahweh said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat. So the holy of holies is what we're talking about, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, 
and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments, therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. So it says here that Yahweh appeared on the mercy seat. For those who may not know, the mercy seat was the cover to the Ark of the Covenant. It was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. It comes from the Hebrew Kaporeth. Kaporeth. Here's a, uh, the Brown Drover Briggs provides a fair, fairly thorough definition of what this word means. It says it was a slab of gold, two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits. Did not do the math, but cubit was about 18 inches. Placed on top of the Ark of the Testimony, on it and a part of it were two golden cherubim facing each other whose outstretched wings came together above and constituted. Now, I'm not adding, I'm not removing or replacing Yahweh's name here. It has Yahweh's name in the text, just to kind of throw that in. Throw that in. It says, above and constituted, it says, a throne of Yahweh. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, it was necessary that this highest place of atonement should be enveloped in a cloud of incense. And we'll read about that. The blood of the sin offering of the atonement was then sprinkled on the face of and seven times before. And again, we'll, we'll see all of this as we go through this message. According to Jacinius, though, this word is also, this kaporeth, is connected with the thought of propitiation or atonement. So there is some understanding that kaporeth is not just a lid, but it refers to this concept of atonement to compassion. We also see here that the kaporth, or the mercy seat, which again sat on top of the ark, was considered the throne of Yahweh. We had the cherubim, and it was almost like a throne, and Yahweh's presence would reside on that throne, on the mercy seat, which again sat upon the ark of the covenant. We see in this passage that the high priest would put on holy garments, which I believed symbolized purity, purity that he had to have coming before Yahweh in this sacred day. As believers, we're also to walk in this same purity. There's always a lesson we can find. I I believe that. There's always a lesson we can find. So even though this is referring to the priest, I believe that knowing that our bodies represent Yahweh's temple today, the dwelling place, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that we too must always do our very best to remain pure for our Father in heaven is symbolized, I believe, through these garments. We also see here that the priest had to wash his flesh or his body with water in water. I believe that this act of washing is, again, an act of cleansing, purity. I believe it probably even provides a connection to baptism. There's a lot of... Lot of um, Theories as to where baptism arose from, certainly we don't find it as we do it in the Old Testament, but we certainly find examples like this, where the high priests and the priests would cleanse themselves with water, this cleansing before they would, they would act and participate within these offerings. All baptisms, as we know now, is through water immersion and, and uh Through that, we receive the blood of Messiah and the washing of our sins. Well, let's continue with verse uh, 5 here. 5 through 6, it says, And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. Why do you suppose Aaron here had to offer a bullock for himself and for his family instead of a, uh, a goat. Why do you suppose he offered a bullock? Or different animals had different values within the sacrificial system. In this case, a bullock was worth more than a goat. Well, that's why he did this. That's why he used a goat, inst- or that's why he used a bullock instead of a goat. You see, he realized, being the priest, the high priest, that he had to offer a greater sacrifice, and that's why Yahweh commanded here that he offer a bullock. He was a high priest. He required a greater offering. In some ways, this reminds me of what we find in the book of James with ministers. There in James 3, it says that warns not to be many ministers. And it says, knowing that we, those who serve in the ministry, 
will receive the heavier condemnation. So there's even a scripture there. Don't, don't let there be many ministers. Don't let there be many people in these positions because they're going to receive the heavier condemnation. And that's something that should be sobering to all of us who minister and stand behind this pulpit. It should be a sobering thought. Verse 7 here goes on to say, it says, And he shall take the two goats and present them before Yahweh at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which Yahweh's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. This gets nuanced, but it's important that we understand these differences here. It says, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So we see two goats here. Two goats were presented before Aaron. One, it says, would be Yahweh's goat, and the other goat would be the scapegoat, or the Azazel, as we find within Hebrew. Now, Yahweh's goat was used how? Yahweh's goat was used as a sin offering. But the live goat, or the scapegoat, how was this goat used? Our scripture says that this goat would be taken out into the wilderness, and it would be a live goat. So you have the escape goat, the live goat. You also have Yahweh's goat, which Yahweh's goat was also the sin offering. So understand those nuances. So you have two goats. One was, one was a goat that would be used for a sin offering. One goat would remain alive. The sin offering was Yahweh's goat, and the other goat, again, was taken out into the wilderness. So this is, this is an important concept to understand. How were these ghosts chosen, or these ghosts were chosen, as we see here through lots? I want to share with you what we say in the RSB on this, so we have a commentary on this. It says, the process of casting lots consisted of an actual process, and this uh, is a citation, I believe, from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. It says, Jewish writers have thus described the priest placing one of the goats on his right hand, the other on his left, took a station by the altar and cast into an urn, two pieces of gold exactly similar inscribed, then one with words for Yahweh and the other for Azazel, or the scapegoat. Having, after having well shaken them together, he put both his hands in the box and took up a lot in each. Then in his right hand he put on the head of the goat which stood on the right, and that in his left he dropped on the other in this manner, the fate of each was decided. Now we see here that one lot was for Yahweh's goat, which again was a sin offering, and the other lot was for the scapegoat or live goat. And we see here how these goats were chosen. Now, again, what were the differences? We've talked about this already at length. Again, Yahweh's goat was the sin offering, and the scapegoat was the live goat that would be taken out. Now, Scripture says that the scapegoat would be presented before the high priest, and the priest would lay his hands upon the goat, and in so doing, symbolically, would transfer the sins of Israel from Israel to this scapegoat, to the Azazel. After this, it says a fit man would take the uh, scapegoat out of the camp and into the place of a uh, wilderness. So if I understand it right, uh, later on they would actually push the goat off a cliff because the goat sometimes came back. And uh, certainly did not want the uh, goat, symbolizing all your sins, returning to the camp. Now keep in mind again that the scapegoat was not the sin offering and not sacrificed. It was a live goat. It was never sacrificed. I want to share some information we have on the scapegoat, again, from the Arsby. It says scapegoat called Azazel in Hebrew, in the Hebrew meaning the goat of departure. Of course, it departed where? Departed from the camp into the wilderness. This goat likely represented Satan, which is led away into the wilderness. Upon this goat, and Aaron was to lay both his hands and confess over it all the sins and transgressions of Israel. In effect, transferring all the sin back onto the adversary, the originator 
of sin. And we'll see how this plays in, we believe, the end-time prophecy in just a few moments. But we see the description of the scapegoat, as we understand it here. Again, we believe the scapegoat is symbolic of Satan the devil, that the sins of Israel, as, it, as they were transferred to this goat, we will see something very similar to this in the future. But we'll see that later in this message. Now, we know, we know that there was an elaborate process for the Day of Atonement. We know that there were many, many things occurring during, during the Day of Atonement, and thankfully, because of this passage, we know what those were and how they occurred. So I'm going to go ahead and read the remaining of this. So we're going to read out of the Bible here, so you can either listen or follow in. doesn't, doesn't matter, but Leviticus 16 and uh, we're going to read verses 11 through 28. 11 through 28. It says, And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. So it makes it very clear who the bullock is for. It says the bullock is for himself and for his home and for his household. And again, the reason... He offered a bullock was because it required, he being the high priest, required a greater expense, a greater sacrifice, and bullocks had more value. It says, and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar, which was within the holy place, not the holy of holies, burning coals of fire from off the altar from before Yahweh, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. So he's now going into the Holy of Holies. And this only occurs one time a year. And it shall be the incense upon the fire before Yahweh upon the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that, that he die not. You see, they had to obscure that mercy seat. They had to hide that mercy seat. And they did that through this incense that they would take with the coals and the incense, and they would go in and they would obscure the mercy seat so that he could go in, it says here, without dying. And he shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward and before the mercy seat. Shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times? Now, many will believe that seven symbolizes perfection. Some say completeness. But I certainly believe that seven here is symbolic showing the completeness or the perfection of the blood, of the blood of the covenant that was offered on the Day of Atonement. It says, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring his blood within the... So, so he left. He would then kill this goat, the sin offering. Again, there, there were two goats. One was, again, the, for the sin offering. The other was for the live goat or the Azazel, but here he killed the sin offering. And it says here that is for the people. And bring his blood within the veil and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bullock. So some say, some believe that the high priest would go in only once a year. A better understanding is he would go in just one day a year. Because he actually went in twice. One for the bullock and one for the light or the uh, sin offering so it goes on to say here the blood of the bullock and sprinkle upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness so you see before Aaron could participate officiating he had to be clean, right? So he had to offer the bullock. Before they could proceed onto this live goat or the scapegoat and transfer the sins, the people had to be clean. Verse 17, And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before Yahweh and make an atonement for it and shall make, take the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat and pour it upon the horns of the altar. This was the altar outside in the, within the courtyard area. 
And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And then he, and when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place, the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So after all the atonement was made, after all the cleansing and purifications were made with the, again, this bullock for Aaron and his family, and then this goat for the people of Israel, and after all of that was done, only then would they proceed onto this live goat. Verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and it says, Confess over him all the iniquities, all the sins of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. So again, after the offering of the bullock and after the offering of the goat, the sin offering, we find here that they would bring this live goat, this Azazel, He would place his hands upon this goat. He would confess the sins of Israel upon this goat. And then it says that a fit man would take this goat out, symbolically representing the transmittal of the sins of Israel onto the head of this goat, and then the sins of of Israel being taken out, out of the camp. Verse 23, And the goat shall appear upon him all their transgressions unto a land not inhabited, this is why it's called the place of wilderness. It's a sparse land, a, plant, a land, again, that has no habitation. It says, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So again, tradition is, a, again, started pushing the goat over, but Scripture says just to let the goat go. Let the goat go. It doesn't say to kill the goat. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and put, shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offerings of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. So after they were done, he then again had to wash, he had to bathe, he had to cleanse because again, he was now polluted with these sacrifices and the, the transference, I believe, of Israel's sin. So again, he had to bathe himself. And the fat of the sin offering shall be burnt upon the altar. And he that let the goat, uh, let go the goat, for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh and water and afterward come into the camp. Why do you suppose he had to bathe? It's probably obvious, but he had to bathe because he had taken physically this goat which represented, which carried the sins of Israel's upon its head out of the camp. So this man, I believe, was polluted by this. In some ways, it's the same concept. I'm not making a comparison here to Yahshua necessarily, but it's the same reason why when Yahshua took upon our sins, Yahweh could no longer look upon his own son. Yahshua was, was permeated with our sins and died as a result to cover and to wash away those sins. Verse 27 says, And the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. And he that burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and and afterward he shall come into the camp. So same thing. He carried the blood and and, and the, uh, the the remainder of these sacrifices outside and because of that he now too was unclean so if you bathe and and, uh, cleanse that uncleanness with water I want to now before before we do that we uh, again see here the full picture of of what this day symbolizes what Israel did in the Old Testament and again the different components that were used during this feast, including, again, the bullocks and the goats. I want to transition now and talk about the prophetic meaning of this day. What does Yom Kippur represent? 
What does Yom Kippur represent? Many believe and will say well, this day represents Yahshua's blood. It represents his atonement. And I do think there's atonement and forgiveness, but I think there's a more to it. So I believe it foreshadows two major events that will happen. Number one, the removal of Satan the devil, as depicted through this removal of the scapegoat, and, and Yahweh's forgiveness and reconciliation on Israel in the kingdom to come. We'll see some examples of that. Again, remember that this day is all about making amends and bringing in this reconciliation and, and removing this barrier between mankind and Yahweh. And we're going to find in the millennium that Yahweh will do that with the people of Israel again. But let's talk about Satan first. Where do we find evidence for the scapegoat possibly representing Satan the devil? Oh. There it is. You know, I didn't show that slide. Oh, well, sorry. <laughs> You've seen it before. So it's a step-by-step, but we went through that. So Revelation 20, 1 through 3 says, And I saw an angel came, come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he shall be loosed for a season. So we see here that when Yahshua returns, one of the events that will happen will be the removal of Satan the devil. It says here that he's going to be bound with chains, and he's going to be placed into this bottomless pit, as we find in Scripture. And he will remain there for 1,000 years, it says, for 1,000 years, for the millennium. The millennium, by the way, the word millennium means 1,000 years. And that's why we call this time of 1,000 years when Yahshua reigns and rule the millennium, because that's what it means, the word millennium, 1,000 years. And during this millennium, during these 1,000 years, we find here that Satan's going to be bound and he's going to be cast into this pit. And as a result, he will deceive the nations no more. And I believe we see some parallels between this event and what occurred with the scapegoat in the Old Testament. So here are some examples. As a sin of Israel was transferred to the scapegoat, we know that. Scripture says that. We know that the sins of Israel were, were transferred to the scapegoat. Where I believe that the sins of mankind will be transferred back to Satan the devil the originator of sin at this time. Also, as a fit man took the scapegoat out into the wilderness, we find here that an angel will, will bind Satan with chains and place him into this place of wilderness, if you will, this bottomless pit. And lastly, here is a scapegoat was kept alive. Satan the devil will be kept alive. So it's not conclusive, but I certainly believe that there's key indicators showing a connection between this scapegoat and Satan the devil, showing how Satan can and possibly will fulfill this action that we find within the Old Testament through the Azazel. So again, based on this, we believe here that the scapegoat is in the Old Testament foreshadowed the removal of Satan the devil. For a moment, consider the monumental monumental meaning we find with this event. We're talking about the removal of Satan the devil. We're talking about the casting away of the one who deceived mankind in the beginning. Very few events or times is more significant than what we find here with the casting out, with the removal of Satan the devil. But it will happen and we believe, again, that this time is depicted through the Azazel. And I also believe that this day foreshadows what Yahweh's going to do in the millennium. And over the years, I've looked more and more at this, and I've become more and more convinced that this is the case. As we see in the Word, when Yahshua returns, a few things will happen. One of those things is we know that he will gather, regather the people of Israel. 
and he will bring them back to their own land. And we also find that he will heal their sins, that he will forgive their sins. Remember that the Day of Atonement is all about reconciliation. It's about making amends. It's about bringing what is, what, what is wrong and making it right. And in the millennium, Yahshua is going to do that for the people of Israel. He is going to bring them back. He is going to restore them. And he is going to forgive them. And he is going to cleanse them. Now, I'm going to share some examples of this as we see in Scripture. first one is from Jeremiah 31, beginning there in verse 31. It says, Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according, so this is for Israel and Judah. Now, we also know this extends beyond that because this speaks of the new covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, says Yahweh. Just real quick, what was the issue in the Old Testament? Was it Yahweh's covenant or was it the people? It was the people. You know, so many people, they will say things like that old and horrible old covenant, that horrible Old Testament could not save anybody. No. Now, certainly some of that's true from an atonement standpoint, but the, pe- the, the issue was not Yahweh's covenant. The issue here, according to this, was a people. goes on to say, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, that the I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. And that's really what a covenant is, that Yahweh is our Elohim and we are his people. And then there are stipulations to that covenant. goes on to say, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, And every man is brother, saying, No, Yahweh. It says here, For all will know me. All will know me. From the least of them, even to the greatest of them, says Yahweh. For I, I, listen, it says, I will forgive their iniquity. When? What are we talking about? It's talking about a time when all will know Yahweh. It says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember what? And I will remember their sin no more. Now, this is referring to the New Covenant. I believe that we are in the New Covenant. I don't believe that we have seen the fulfillment of the New Covenant. I believe that the New Covenant, the fulfillment, is what we find here. For one, we find here that when the New Covenant is fully fulfilled or in place, it says here that we're not going to need to tell our neighbors about Yahweh. We're not going to have to go down the street and say, Hey, do you know Yahweh? Do you understand his word? And they're going to say, Of course I do. Everybody knows Yahweh. Everybody understands his word. Everybody knows about who Yahweh is. Or that's not happening today. Can we go down the street today? Can we go to Mosher's and say, hey, do you know Yahweh? They're going to look at us with such a puzzled look. They don't know Yahweh. Most don't know Yahweh. Most, they have no clue on who Yahweh is, what he is, what he represents. What we should be doing is his people to please him. Today, people are ignorant of who Yahweh is, not in the millennium. Not when this is fulfilled. When this is fulfilled, when the new covenant is fully in place, the environment is going to be such that we're not going to have to tell anybody on earth about Yahweh. For it says, all will know him. All will know him. Now, we also see another promise here. A promise that I believe correlates with the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur. It says here that at this time he will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. What did Yahweh do in the Old Testament for Israel? He removed their sins, right? He remembered them no more. He made reconciliation with Israel by the removal of their sins. What will he do in the millennium? He will remember their sins no more. He will will forgive their iniquities. I believe what Yahweh did in the Old Testament foreshadowed what what he will do again for his people Israel, in the millennium. When our Savior returns, he will forgive Israel and remember their sins no more. Yom Kippur, again, is all about forgiveness. It's all about reconciliation. And this is precisely what will happen when our Savior returns to this earth. Now, we see another example of this in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 33, it says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean, from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Verse 33, thus saith my sovereign Yahweh in the day that I 
shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities. I will also cleanse you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded. And I believe that this passage is dual for the record. From a historical standpoint, I believe this refers in part to when Yahweh brought Israel back, Judah back from Babylonian exile. But we find here, I believe that it also prophetically points to the Yahshua's coming. And again, the time when Yahweh will gather his people together and restore them to their own land and build their waste places. We know that. We know prophetically that this will happen when our Savior returns. We see here that when Yahweh promises to cleanse his people and remove their iniquity, and it will happen again when Yahshua returns. This is what Yom Kippur is all about. Yom Kippur is a day of cleansing. It is a day of removing that iniquity. It is a day of making at one mint, as some may say. And Yahweh will do this for the people of Israel in the kingdom in the millennium. One more passage here. This is probably the best of all three. Ezekiel 37, which we know, by the way, is a prophetic passage. You know what? I have this on the slide, but we're not going anywhere, and we're certainly not having a meal. So, not until sunset anyway. So I want to read this out of Scripture. I have 21 through 23 here, but if you want to follow me in the Bible or just listen, it doesn't matter to me, but Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is one of the most important passages we find in all of Scripture. It's one of the greatest messianic prophecies we find in Scripture. And here, starting in verse 15, I want to start in verse 15, and we'll probably, um, I don't know, we'll just see how far we go. But verse 15 says, The word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take you one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick, write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of Israel, and when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Will thou not show us what you mean by these? Saying to them, Thus says my sovereign Yahweh, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and put them with him, even the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. So what do we find here? We find two sticks, two sticks. One is for Judah, and one is for Ephraim, representing all of Israel, Judah and Ephraim. And we find here that, that Ezekiel is making them into what? He's making them into one stick. He's making them into one stick, and this one stick symbolizes the regathering of Israel. You see, prophetically, prophetically, we know that Yahweh is going to gather the lost tribes, and he's going to bring them back to their land, and he's going to remove, we also find scripturally, any animosity between them. But here, this is a great prophecy. And we find, again, two sticks, one representing Judah, one representing Ephraim. We put them together, and what do we have? We have all 12 tribes. We have all 12 tribes. That's what we find within this prophecy. Verse 20, it says, In the sick, whereon thou writes, shall be on thine hand before thine eyes. And saying to them, Thus saith my sovereign Yahweh, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. Prophetically, the promise of bringing Israel back to their own land. And not just Judah. Not just Judah. Not just Benjamin. All 12 tribes. Because we find represented Judah and Ephraim. And all the tribes that would be represented through those tribes. All 12 tribes. Verse 22, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more be two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. So we see at this time there's not going to be the southern and the northern tribes. You're not going to have Judah in the south and the uh, Ephraim in the north. 
No, they're going to be one nation, one people, in one country. Verse 23, neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any other transgressions. For I, what? I will save them. I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they, are, they have sinned. I, they have sinned and will cleanse them. I'm going to cleanse them. And it says, so shall they be my people and I will be their Elohim. This is in the future. This has not happened yet. So Yahweh is describing a time when he's going to bring back his people, all 12 tribes, and that he's going to bring them back to their land, and he's going to cleanse them, and that he's going, and they're going to be his people. Now, if this does not describe or sound like what occurs on the Day of Atonement, I'm not sure what does. The Day of Atonement is about cleansing. It is about the removal of sin. It is about bringing a people lost back to Almighty Yahweh. Now, some say, some believe that this has already occurred. And one of the things I believe that dispels that is what we find in verse 24. It says, And David, my servant, shall be king over them. Shall be king over them. So some say that this was a conditional promise for Ezekiel's day, or that David was dead. So no matter what the situation, David would have had to been resurrected or that would not have happened within Ezekiel's lifetime, could not have been fulfilled within Ezekiel's lifetime. But certainly, during at Yahshua's coming, we know it will be fulfilled. We know it will be fulfilled. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they, dwell, they will dwell in the land that I will give unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Wherever I will make a covenant of peace with them, it shall be for an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. One of the greatest messianic prophecies I believe we find within the word. Now I want to read just one more time from the slide here. The key passages I want to focus on. So Ezekiel 37, again, 21 through 23, it says, And I say unto, and say unto them, Thus saith my sovereign Yahweh, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more uh, be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms, any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves with any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their Elohim. This prophecy is for the future, pointing to the return of Yahshua the Messiah. And we find other passages like this. For instance, you know what? Again, we're not going, going to go anywhere. So I'm just going to share another nugget with you here, as Brother Jose may say. I believe he's the one that shares that analogy. So Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah is very similar to what we find here in Ezekiel 37. Jeremiah chapter 23. So Jeremiah chapter 23 I'm going to start here in verse 5. It says, Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that I will rise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall dwell, shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called Yahweh or righteousness or Yahweh Zitkanu. This is a reference to our Savior in the millennium. And we find during this time that it says that Israel and Judah will dwell safely. That again, they're going to be brought back. Verse, 20, verse 7 of 23 of Jeremiah says, Therefore, behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that they shall no more say Yahweh lives, who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Listen, here's why. Verse 8 says, But Yahweh lives, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. 
It's the same prophecy that we find here in Ezekiel 37. We have two witnesses, more witnesses, but there's two witnesses confirming, confirming that during the millennium, that one thing will happen, or one of the things, and that is that Yahshua will bring the people of Israel. He's going to bring back, again, the sticks of Ephraim and Judah, restore them to their own land so that they will no longer be two nations or two kingdoms, but one kingdom. And David, again, King David, will rule over the nation of Israel. I believe that Yahshua is going to rule over the earth, and I believe that King David then will rule over the children of Israel and and uh, you know, report too, as everybody else will, to Yahshua the Messiah. Now again, in verse 21 through 23, we find here that it says that Yahweh is going to remove their sins, that he is going to forgive their sins, that he is going to cleanse his people, and that they will be his people, and that he will be their Elohim. When Yahshua returns to gather his people back to their own land, we find a prophetic promise that he will forgive their sins, and that he will make amends, and that reconciliation will occur. And I believe, again, that this is foreshadowed through this feast. This day is all about forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoring a people from sin. And that's precisely what we find will take place when our Savior returns. Now, this view also fits prophetically with the order of the feast days. An observation I saw years ago is that the fulfillment of the feast days seemed to be chronological in order. Now let me share with you, I have two slides prepared. One is looking back. So on this slide we find the fulfillments from Passover through the Feast of Weeks. And we know that these feasts have been fulfilled prophetically. So the Passover, as we see here, symbolized Yahshua's death and sacrifice. The Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Love of Bread, I should say, symbolized Yahshua's resurrection from the grave. And also the Feast of Weeks, then, the Pentecost, represents the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So these feast days have already happened. The fulfillment have, has already happened, but not the fall feast. So the fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled. So here's the likely fulfillment for the fall feasts. And this would be from Trumpets to the Last Great Day. So, trumpets, most believe that this refers to Yahshua's second coming, and with that, the resurrection of the saints. One of the things I've noticed on all my years of messages, and I've heard many, many messages, I've been in, this is my 45th um, Day of Atonement, 45th, and in all my years, I hear trumpets, uh, whoever speaks on trumpet will focus normally on Yahshua's coming, which is not wrong. But the problem is, there's two things that happen when Yahshua returns, his coming, obviously, and the resurrection of the saints. So the Feast of Trumpets memorializes Yahshua's second coming and the resurrection of the saints, not just the one. Of course, atonement, we've talked about it, but I believe that this symbolizes the regathering of Israel back to their land and the forgiveness of Israel's sins. Tabernacles represents the millennial kingdom. I believe most everybody understands that. And the last great day symbolizes the great white throne judgment, also known as the second death, when all of mankind will be judged except for those in the first resurrection. So we find here how the forgiveness and reconciliation of Israel in the millennium follows this prophetic pattern. We find that it occurs between Yahshua's coming and the establishment of the kingdom. And that's where we would find it. The other thing I want to point out here, and I have a slide for this as well, is Yahshua's involvement with all the feast days. He's such a crucial role. Yahshua plays a crucial role with all the feast days. And here's an example of every single feast day and where Yahshua and how Yahshua fits into that. So Yahshua died on the Passover and redeemed us through his blood. Yahshua was resurrected on the Feast of Love and Bread, ensuring the possibility of our own resurrection. Because keep in mind that our resurrection is predicated upon his resurrection. If Yahshua was never resurrected, guess what? We would have no resurrection. Our resurrection is predicated upon Yahshua's resurrection. Yahshua was resurrected during that feast. 
Again, ensuring our own resurrection. Based on John 14 and Acts 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was made possible through Yahshua's death and resurrection. We know that Yahshua had to depart before the Holy Spirit could come. And as we see in Acts 2, that it was a gift that he poured out upon his people. Yahshua was going to return to the Feast of Trumpets and offer eternal life to those called and chosen. As promised on the Day of Atonement, when Yahshua returns, he's going to bring back and cleanse the people of Israel from their sins. As depicted through the Feast of Tabernacles, Yahshua was going to reign and rule in the millennium with the purpose of restoring truth and righteousness. And as shown through the last great day, Yahshua was going to judge all of mankind during the great white throne judgment. You know, I pray that this message has been a help to you, that's kind of opened your eyes maybe to the meaning and purpose of Yom Kippur. This is a very, very special day, we find. And most people dread this day. I know as a kid, I just despised the Day of Atonement, just despised this. I hated the Day of Atonement, but I don't mind it now. But it's a great day. It really is, and, and it's so rich in prophetic meaning and implication. Not only what we find in the old, but I believe what it holds for us and for Yahweh's people in the New Testament. So with that, I'd like to uh, pronounce now upon you a very special blessing, a blessing that the priest would pronounce upon the people. So if you could all stand, and uh, I will uh, do this now. Yever Keka, Yahweh, Wigish, Mareka, Yarir, Yahweh, Pana, Aleka, Wukuneka, Yasa, Yahweh, Pana, Aleka, Wiasim, Aleka, Shalom. That as Yahweh bless thee and keep thee, Yahweh make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Hallelujah.